Hi listeners, Jason here. You may have already heard that the International Standard for Psychological Health and Safety at Work, ISO 45003 2021, has now been released. We are thrilled that we finally have a globally agreed best practice manual for how workplace mental health should be done and that the focus is on risk management and not fruit bowls and yoga. To help fast track your understanding and adoption of the standard, Joelle and myself have been working hard on a free online training course. The ISO 45003 Foundations course features an hour of video content, which will take you through the plan, do, check and act phases of the standard. The training is now live at www.45003.org. Please register and share with your network. On behalf of Joel and myself, we hope that you'll find it really beneficial and this helps you to prevent psychological injuries and improve worker wellbeing in your workplace. And did I mention it was free? Now, on to this episode. From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Danshee, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help with this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. But before I introduce our guests and topic for today, allow me to introduce my co-host, Joelle Mitchell. How are you today, Joelle? Jason, I've had uh, two things happen to me that are work-related this week that I'd like to share with our listeners because I think it gives a good indication of the um, variety of experiences that I have while I'm at work here. I'm a little bit worried. Should you be like, you know, bringing this up with me first before our listeners? I think you're aware. (laughs) <laughs> oh the things that I did <laughs> well the, no so the first the first thing you didn't do uh the first thing was I was invited to uh appear as a panelist on at the uh conference coming up for the Australian Psychological Society College of Organizational Psychologists that's great you are an influencer so apparently uh, yeah. apparently I am <laughs> hashtag influencer um so that's that's nice and yeah, um no, and rewarding great. and um positive um and then as a as a contrast to that um i was measured against a 12 year old child um to see who was taller yeah um so and, and who was taller joel it was unclear <laughs> well um according to a, the 12 year old child he, he was a lot bigger well, by a mile according to him so yeah. i think he probably um takes after his father in the way of um exaggeration yeah, all accuracy. Yeah, wise kid, I reckon. Yeah, <laughs> if he takes after his dad. So, yeah. In case the listeners aren't aware, my twelve-year-old son is huge, and Joel is tiny. And um, yeah. Well, Jason's also very tall, so I think we can probably um, say that he he may not be an average twelve-year-old height. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> if that can make me feel any, I don't. I shouldn't have to feel bad because I'm short. I am as I am. And we accept you as you are, Joel. So yeah, we, we know that you're not going to grow another foot and be average size anytime soon. So. No, no. Yeah. That's great. Well, um, no, look, uh, let's not talk any further about height or lack of. Um, let's introduce our guest. So um, uh, she has more than 20 years of experience working in the mental health, substance abuse and health and social care fields. Uh, she actually developed the first UK levy-funded workplace mental health leadership development apprenticeship program as well. Uh, this person is the co-founder and managing director of Our Minds Work. Welcome to the podcast, Emily Pearson. 
Hello, good morning and good evening for you both. <laughs> yeah, there is good a little bit of time zone difference. Yeah, so glad glad we could make the calendars work and for you to join us via the magic of the internet. Yes, definitely. And I'll add something that was quite joyous about getting up that little bit earlier this morning is I managed to actually hear when I let the cats in first thing this morning, the dawn chorus. So that was a pretty pretty kind of a magnificent moment because I don't normally get to hear it that early. <laughs> so thanks for getting me out of bed a little bit earlier this morning. I, uh, I really enjoyed hearing the birds singing away. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, and in fact, um, wasn't that the uh, focus of Mental Health uh, Week uh, as well, about nature and the benefits for mental well-being? So glad yes, that, glad you got a bit of that this morning. So there's uh, yeah. one positive to come out of the early morning start. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Here in Australia, the, the dawn chorus often consists of crows, which is not that pleasant to yeah. hear. <laughs> um, All right. Well, let's let's get started. Can you tell us what podcast you like to listen to? So I have two favourites, really. Um, one of my most favourites that I listen to on a probably a, a weekly basis when they release new ones is a couple of evolutionary biologists called Brett Weinstein and Heather Hayen. You may have heard of them. Um, they're, they're from America. They're not UK based, but they are so interesting. Uh, very reasonable people. They obviously have a lot of knowledge in understanding evolutionary psychology and biology. So I really get a lot from listening to their perspective and understanding how we can use some of the things that they understand in how we evolve and um, ecosystems and then actually start to think about how we can re relate that back into the workplace. And the other podcast that I listen to regularly as well is a guy called Sam Harris, another um, American uh, podcaster, uh, philosopher, again, you know, one of the most reasonable people I've ever heard actually talk about, um, you know, some of the most um, divisive topics and dividing topics that we probably have around at the moment as well. So they're, they're two of my main, main podcasts that I listen to. Fantastic. I don't think we've any of our guests have come up with those ones before. So no, I've uh, made a note of them. Yep. Some new ones for the listeners there. Fantastic. Um, all right. Well, can you tell us all about your professional career then? Gosh, yes. So let's do 20 years in 60 seconds. <laughs> um, so my career in health and social care really started after my own lived experience of severe mental illness. Um, I'd always had an interest in people and helping people and my very first job working in health and social care was with adults with um, learning difficulties and dementia. So I was always very interested in psychology, you know, in, in kind of mental health. Um, but when I became unwell, obviously, I didn't wasn't able to do very much. I had become so unwell, I was unable to function normally. Um, couldn't work, some days couldn't get out of bed. I was diagnosed with a range of mental health problems, um, clinical depression, um, anxiety, panic disorder, anorexia. It's like a game of bingo being sat in the doctors. But to me, those diagnoses weren't always helpful for me. I think what I realize now after decades and decades of learning about myself and, and mental health is I was just unwell 
And when I look back at the reasons why there were, you know, significant traumas and challenges throughout my teenagers. So I didn't feel as if I had these labels and diagnoses that actually some of those diagnoses can be very, very difficult to be told that you, you know, you're never going to recover from them. You're always going to have them, especially, you know, depression 20 years ago was thought that it was something that you would continuously have and you would, you would only be well if you took medication for them. So we're, we understand mental health very, very differently now. I worked with young people um, in care, insecure in the communities and looked after care for around about 10, 12 years um, before I actually decided that, you know, I'd learned a significant amount in young, with your, working with young people and I wanted to look at training to be a health and social care trainer. So that was the angle I, I then started to take was looking at how I could use what I'd learned and start to do, start to train other people in the experience and knowledge that I'd had. So I did my time working from young people into, into adult care, um, which kind of brings us up to the workplace. So I uh, then had the opportunity to work with MIND. So MIND is the biggest um, mental health charity in England. And I had an amazing opportunity to work on really the first workplace mental health culture change program, which ran about five, gosh, it'd be coming up to five, six years ago now. And this was called the Blue Light Programme. And I was part of an amazing team who actually designed and delivered uh, a culture change framework of um, training, um, implementing a range of initiatives in the workplace, um, you know, getting senior leaders on board to really lead the culture change. So all the things that we talk about now, this really was an innovative way of actually bringing in these culture change programmes. Um, and up in the Northeast, uh, managed and led the Northeast Network. So that was where we delivered into the six local uh, emergency services. We had, out of all the six pilots, the most successful pilot, the thirst and passion in the Northeast to really implement, you know, these products and services that we designed was just phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And they're still ongoing now, not just up here in the Northeast, but um, many of the pilots and many of the mines across, across the UK now uh, continue to deliver the Blue Light Programme. So, you know, it's completely embedded into workplace practice and culture. And that was always, and that still is always where we want to get to when we're talking about culture change in the workplace. So that was really my first experience, bringing all of what I'd learned and all my qualifications and knowledge into understanding mental health in the workplace. And I keep talking about environments because this really is part of the Our Minds Work model of understanding workplaces. We talk about workplaces as an ecosystem and how an ecosystem can be very fragile, can be very fragile things like change. Um, but we also understand what a flourishing ecosystem looks like. And as humans, that's generally what, we've, what we're constantly trying to achieve. And we probably understand how to do that better in, in the world of, you know, the trees, the sun and uh, our real life nature ecosystems that we, you know, we, we just started talking about there. Nothing birds weren't singing this morning, 
that would tell me that my ecosystem either didn't have any birds in it, which would probably mean I'm maybe sat in a city somewhere, or if I was in out in nature like I am here, that would be a real worry to me. So we like to think about the workplace as an ecosystem in this way and how all the different parts actually come together to create a healthy, thriving ecosystem, which we, you know, we, we want to create. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of where, where I'm at now. And <clears throat> once I left working for Mind, um, I sat up, set up our Mind's work with a couple of co-founders. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. And our mission really is to create mentally healthy workplaces that thrive by implementing our culture change model. So we've actually created our own framework of culture change um, in a specific order. And we support workplaces to actually implement this culture change to help them to move from um, an ecosystem that may be at risk. So actually an ecosystem that causes psychological injuries, you know, aren't even legally compliant when it comes to things like work-related stress and following um, the HSE legislation all the way through to what we call inspiring culture. And that really is where that culture is so embedded. It's just part of daily practice. It's part of the way that you think about your workplace as an ecosystem and you're constantly evaluating it. You're constantly collaborating together for better outcomes. And you're constantly trying to um, empower and encourage people to take ownership for their own mental health, but also for the changes to create a mentally healthy workplace. So that, that eco model, which I've just mentioned there is about evaluation, collaboration and ownership all really fits into how we look to understand the, the, the world of what the workplace as, a, as an ecosystem. And one of the reasons why I like to think about it that way is because my very first job working in um, the, the, the training center for young people you can just imagine what that environment was like. You can just imagine what that ecosystem was like. You know, it, it was a really, really difficult place to work. And it was a very, very difficult place for young people to be in, away from the family, away from the friends, Catsy prison, you know, officers walking around, restraints a lot of the time, struggling with mental health problems. You know, it, it, it was, it was the complete opposite of what we want to achieve in the workplace. So I've seen what it looks like when it's not going very well. So what we want to be able to do is to achieve something, um, you know, where we can all have access to support when we need it so that we're able to thrive. That was a little longer than 60 seconds. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> 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 that was a very thorough overview, no, but, but very very good to understand the journey, I guess, from your own lived experience to some of your early um, professional experiences, assisting people who were in a similar position or worse than what you were and, um, you know, how you've now translated that into more of a corporate environment. So I am interested in, you know, our minds work and, you know, you talked about this ecosystem, um, but what are some of the specific deliverables that you provide to, to organizations who engage your services? Yeah, definitely. So one of the things that we don't do is we don't do tick boxes. Uh, so we have designed our own culture. But, but I found I found companies really like tick boxes. <laughs> yes, they do. So they tend not to be our clients. Great way of filtering filtering them out, really. 
I yeah. think so you know, and um I've, you know somebody said to me the other day uh, I bet you're really busy during mental health awareness week and we are no busier than we are any other time because the clients that we work with we work with them over years and years and years and we actually train people to run their own campaigns so you know, we don't get people messaging us going, can you just come in and do an hour's talk because it's Mental Health Awareness Week. And actually, if we did have that, we would be saying, well, do you have this in place first? You know, if if somebody comes out of this session and says, I'm struggling, where do we send them for help? Do your managers know how to support that person? So we generally get to the point where it's like, mm, maybe this isn't the right time for you and we're not the right company to deliver a tick, tick box exercise. You said good um, on you for, um, you know, not taking those clients on board who don't want to do it properly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so what we're wanting to talk to you about today is um, the mental health first aid um, component of that and probably more broadly um, looking at the way that, you know, the way that organisations commonly use mental health first aid and maybe some of the um, the issues um, that might be associated with that. Um, so to sort of lead into that, do you have some observations about how mental health first aid is typically implemented in organisations? Yeah, I mean, when when we talk about mental health first aid, it's a bit of an umbrella term because there are many different um, products when it comes to mental health first aid. Uh, some of them are accredited, some of them are not accredited. Uh, you know, there's a range of organisations actually delivering what we call mental health first style initiatives. So I think when we think about um, a starting point, I like to explain things visually. And the way that I like to think about it is, mental health first aid is generally known as a two day training course that is probably more based on mental health awareness rather than you know really building skills and behaviors in somebody to become a person in a specific role. So if you just put people on this mental health first aid, two day training course, and you're now saying you're a mental health first aider and you have a specific role, expectations, responsibilities, but you don't do all of the things that's needed to do to safely implement that. It's a bit like saying, so we're going to start up um, a peer-to-peer -peer support service. We're going to call them mental health first aiders. They're there to provide, you know, mental health, listening and signposting to colleagues. And okay, great, you've gone on your two-day training. Now what do you do? The way that I like to visually represent this is imagine you've trained 50 to 100 people on this training course. And some of our, some of some of the people we companies we come across, you know, even exceed that in a workplace. <clears throat> and they're all stood in the car park and it's raining and the wind's blowing. <laughs> These people are stood there. People are walking past them going, what are they stood there for? I'm not quite sure what they're supposed to be doing, you know, not you, no, not paying any attention. That's a bit weird, you know, I don't understand why they're there. These people are not protected by anything. Uh, nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> so we can think about mental health first aid trained people as they've just been on a two-day training course, but they're there with an expectation to provide a service 
for their colleagues, but without any of the infrastructure and guidance and, and support and protection to be able to do that safely. So that's where a lot of organizations kind of start and stop. <laughs> that for a lot of organizations is just they put people on training and they expect it to just run itself. There are then different levels of um, how far companies go with regards to getting to a place where for us, when we talk about our blueprint, so we spent around about six months actually designing um, a very comprehensive blueprint that covers the steps, all the steps required to implement a safe service, because that's what we're doing. We're training people in a role to provide a service for their colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's obviously, that's, sorry to cut you off, Emily, and that's obviously really important to, to do that. So I'm interested, um, you know, what is the lived experience then like for mental health first aiders and why do they need this additional support? Yeah, so when we think about providing a service for people, there is a, a range of risks, not just for the mental health first aiders, but for any of the colleagues who they are there to support or provide a service to, and for the business as well. Yeah, there are risks for everybody here. And one of the ways of implementing a safe service has to be around safe recruitment. And if you think about creating a service, any other service, not mental health first aid service, let's say, I don't know, it was a service that um that sold i don't know plants to people <laughs> you know you you would have to recruit these people you would have to train them correctly to do do the job that they're expected to do they would have regular supervision not supervision but um I use the term supervision they would have regular one-to-ones to check in you know how's the job going do you need any additional support you know has there been any problems you know reviewing and monitoring that service we would do that with any service ever but what's happened is we, I don't think mental health first aid has been marketed in the right way. So we have this level of expectation, which is much higher in comparison to what the training actually delivers. Yeah. So it's all of this other stuff that needs to be wrapped around to safeguard people. Yeah. Safeguard people, not, not just mental health first aid. This is everybody. But when it comes to lived experience, one of the things that we do understand is generally people like myself have had a lived experience and then we want to help people you know we want to be able to use that experience to help other people there's a couple of things around this is one of the issues around recruitment around mental health first aiders has generally just been who wants to be a mental health first aider people put their hands up and they go along to the training without really understanding the kind of complexities and the really um, importance of the role and the responsibilities that that's expected of them so that in itself can be very very difficult for people if you've got a lived experience and you're not prepared for some of the conversations that you might now get into, there's no triage, there's no protective barrier. That person maybe doesn't know how to deal confidently with a situation where they're in, where actually they're having a conversation about something that might be triggering some of their past trauma. So when we come to kind of safeguarding people, it, in, it includes one element of 
safeguarding people who potentially have a lived experience. So keeping to that thread, our blueprint, we sat and really thought about this. And, you know, I was part of setting up a, a counselling service for um, a local mind. And I know what you need to do to set up a counselling service. You know, there is a lot of safeguards, policies and procedures, infrastructure in place to safeguard not just the, you know, the, the patients and the, and the clients, but also the counsellors, the people who are therapists and the people who have more knowledge and understanding around mental ill health and safeguarding than anyone. Um, and one of the ways that this is done is kind of through a triage process and through understanding who your, um, your counsellors are. Uh, so for example, a, a triage process helps us to figure out, you know, why is this um, client coming for support? If that client is coming to talk about domestic violence and abuse, you are not going to match them with your, your, your therapist who has said, look, I, I don't do domestic violence and abuse. It's too, it's too close. It's too raw for me. But in the workplace, when we say, come and talk to us about mental health, you are opening the door to people coming and talking about anything mm. connected to our mental health. And there is no triage, there's no safeguards in place. So one of the ways that we, we work with organisations to implement this part of safeguarding people around kind of preventing vicarious trauma and re-triggering people into potential relapses is we say, um, there's a couple of things. One of the things is about how you market the service. So we talk about, um, so remember all those people out in the car park? Mm. We talk about our infrastructure and blueprint is actually about creating them a lovely building. It's got a roof on it, which means it's protected from policies, procedures, guidance on actually how to function this service, how to review it, how to keep it safe. It has lovely windows that are transparent, so you can actually see into the service. You know exactly what that pe them people are there for. You know exactly what confidentiality means. You know exactly that somebody can breach confidentiality if there's a safeguarding risk. You know, a lot of organisations don't have safeguarding policies and procedures in place or trained in understanding what this means, yet they'll have, you know, hundreds of mental health first aiders kind of walking around, either potentially missing safe and garden opportunities, or there is a potential greater risk that, you know, if it's what the worst that can happen, a life is lost due to the risk of suicide and it hasn't been managed appropriately. So this, this is a really important part of creating this safe environment for your mental health first aiders, or we like to call them mental health advocates because it's more of a, a an advocate role the way we train them um you know this really is about providing the safety for them to practice safely so they're providing the service safely for them as well as for the people who um they're going to be potentially you know listening to so one of the ways is about your access points how do people access your service so we talk about access points as um, the less number of access points you have, the, the more you can safeguard it, the more you can triage it. So, for example, we'll generally say you should really have two access points 
um, an access point should be, you know, kind of face to face. You've bumped into somebody, you know, over the water cooler and you've just said, oh, you know, I've had a really difficult time this morning. Are you free for a chat? But part of that safeguard and for that mental health first aid uh, has to be the confidence of saying, you know, straight away. So, you know, I'm here to talk to you today. The service is confidential. Unless you tell me something that puts you or somebody else at risk of significant harm, then I'll have to follow our policy and procedure to make sure that people are kept safe. Um, is the, what, it, what is it specifically that you want to talk about today? And if that person then says a topic like, I've just, you know, had a bereavement and you're a mental health first aider sat there who only had a bereavement three months ago, mm. they need to be comfortable and confident in saying, I'm definitely not the right person to speak to you today, but let me find somebody that is. Yep. Because we would do that in, in therapy services. Mm. We would have those layers of safeguarding in place because you could potentially re-trigger somebody through relapse and vicarious trauma that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, that sounds um, very sensible. And yeah, you can understand why there needs to be a lot more thought put around mental health first aid rather than just like being your first port of call. Oh, let's get, you know, 10 volunteers to go on the course and then we're kind of done. So um, yeah. yeah, really good that you're providing that extra level of safeguarding for those people. Yeah. So I mean, you've, I think you've outlined um, fairly well there some of the, the hazards that you can experience when you are a mental health first aider if it's not, um, if, if those protections aren't actually established by the organisation. Um, do you think that organisations have an appreciation of that or is it something that they need a lot of um, educating about? One of, our, um, one of our employees who's actually doing an apprenticeship at the moment, she, um, she, they did this really great uh, activity, which I think is a really great way of showing this. Um, they were all asked to make a paper hat without any direction or guidance. So you obviously they're all making these paper hats. Some of them are really terrible and falling off people's heads. You know, some of them were all right, but they all look very, very different. Um, afterwards, they then gave them the guidance and said, okay, follow this guidance and make your paper hat. Everybody's paper hat was the same. It all stayed on the heads and it actually looked wonderful as well. And I think this is a really great way of saying, um, a really great way of showing people that you only know what you know. And when it comes to mental health, there is nobody in a workplace who has qualifications, experience, um, you know, even understanding the implications of some of the policies and procedures that they're expected to have in place. <clears throat> There's nobody generally in a workplace who has that level of knowledge and experience who could actually implement something like that in a very safe and comprehensive way. <clears throat> Sorry. So that's why <clears throat> we created this blueprint because we now we can say, look, we're here to help you. We have this blueprint. We'll support you through all of the steps so that when you get to the point where people are actually connecting with their colleagues, you can sleep at night. You know that it's been done safely. There's regular support being put into place. People have been developed. They've got um, guidance on how to uh, manage situations. Everybody knows what the infrastructure is. If X happens, do Y. And without all of that, I honestly, even I didn't sleep, knowing that, <laughs> knowing that people weren't doing these things. And this is what really 
triggered us to create our own blueprint because some of the guidance that we were seeing being provided on implementation of mental health first aid style initiatives was frightening. I remember reading <clears throat> one literally just about a month before we, we released ours, it took us about six months to write ours. And as you can see, it's a, it is in, in extremely depth. I mean, I've just told you about one tiny little part of that there. Um, and this, this element in the guidance said, um, you know, if you, if you are concerned about somebody's risk level when it comes to their mental health, tell someone. And I read that and I went, tell who? <laughs> who are we telling? It's almost like no, these companies are not taking responsibility actually for what they're implementing. You know, they've created this, this product and marketed it in a specific way, but then they're not willing to take responsibility for, if you are going to do this, this is like really, you know, the, the back end of what you need to be implementing. And I'm not 100% certain why, whether it's a lack of knowledge by these people who are implementing it, or if it's a lack of um it then doesn't become a tick box exercise, does it? It becomes much harder to do. And I think that's why we have this ethical approach. It's not our best selling sub, it's not our best selling service because it's hard to do and it takes much more investment. But when it's done, it's done, it's implemented. And the way that I like to explain it <clears throat> on much wider terms is, a lot of organizations uh, are not just in the UK, they're actually global, or they, um, they have mental health first aid style initiatives and mental health first aid trained people across a number of units in, in the UK. And if you think about McDonald's, everybody knows McDonald's, McDonald's has a blueprint. So no matter where you are in the world, you go into McDonald's, it's exactly the same. You know, you it, it looks the same, it feels the same, the policies, the procedures, the building's the same, that is their blueprint, yeah? That's what our blueprint does. So then it doesn't matter where your mental health first aiders are in the world, in the UK, they're all following the same blueprint. That's the beauty of this type of infrastructure. Or you have hundreds of mental health first aid trained people without that. So you're back into the, the car park, people stood in the rain, people walking past them. You know, people are not doing what the, the, they're not comfortable to do what they're expected to do. So, you know, it, it is a huge part of creating a mentally healthy workplace. Um, but like you say, it is, it is a part of a strategy. So if you are going to the, the part where you're just training mental health first aiders, without all of that other stuff, you're creating a bigger risk than having none at all. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point because you know we talk a lot about risk management on this show, given it's a psych health and safety podcast. Um, and one of the fundamentals of risk management is being aware that when you bring in a control to mitigate a hazard, that you're aware that you might be bringing in an additional risk. Um, and so often I think organizations bring in mental health first aid training because they think that they're addressing the risk of poor mental health. But what they're doing, as we've been talking about in this episode, is, well, now you're putting another group of people at risk because you don't have the supports or the controls to, to manage the risk that they're exposed to. 
yeah it's almost like um bringing a, a subcontractor in to do your high high hazard work and yeah your workforce is protected but um we we won't worry about the contractor that's actually putting themselves at risk yeah so um yeah it's a fundamental thing that i think organizations need to understand and, and i think you're doing important work um and so um actually on that you talked a bit about i guess over the last uh, close to hour now you've talked about you know your progression from someone with lived experience to a real interest in working with people um, who have their own uh, experiences of, of mental health problems um, and now also then how you are providing further support for companies who want to create, I guess, um, safe mental health first aid in particular kind of programs or peer support programs, you know, safeguarding these people. Um, so looking into the future, um, into your crystal ball, what are your hopes for the, the future of, of workplace mental health? So I think where we are now, and this is always really interesting because I look at how far have we come? And especially in the UK, when mental health in the workplace started to become a thing, um, we called it a movement. Any movement has progression and should be shown kind of measurable outcomes. And I'm still struggling to see some of those um, you know, obviously, I think we, we really are just scratching the surface when it comes to mental health in the workplace. What we have done is really started to reduce stigma and um, build people's awareness. That's really what we've done over the past five to six years, definitely. We haven't seen any of the st statistics coming down yet, specifically when it comes to uh, work-related stress in the UK. Um, the latest statistics before um, the pandemic happened, we saw the highest level of reported work-related stress, anxiety and depression than we have since HSE started to collect that data 18 years ago. And it had gone from a steady incline to this you know, really strong peak. So, you know, this is also a reasonable thing to happen when you do raise awareness and reduce stigma you do see a peak. You'll see a peak in sickness absence, people reporting that actually it's, it's not a cold, it, it is a, you know, anxiety or I'm experiencing stress. So that is reasonable to expect that. And, and I think that just shows how early on we are when it comes to uh, mental health in the workplace, because we're still seeing that speak, that, that spike. We're not starting to see it come down yet. Um, you know, there, there are certain things for me that are as an issue around we're not evidencing certain things so when we think about again mental health first aid style initiatives in the UK we've probably got somewhere like over 800,000 people who have been trained in some form of like mental health first aid and when you look at suicide rates in the UK um, we're up to about 6,000 a year for every one suicide there's about 20 attempts uh, so that you know bumps the statistics up to somewhere around like quarter of a million attempts every year and then add to that the people who were thinking about suicide but actually not going as far as attempting it we're talking about a lot of people mm. so if we have over 800,000 mental health first aiders in the workplace who were there specifically to support people in these moments these conversations are happening in a workplace they're not being recorded, they're not being reported um, because the legislation 
hasn't caught up to what we're actually creating in this workplace. It's a it's a brand new market. Yeah, we, we know that. <clears throat> we wouldn't have been sat here having this conversation six years ago. So we've created this new arena that isn't being monitored. It, it doesn't have legislation to protect it. Um, that we've just had uh, mental health first aid for the second time to be brought into <clears throat> the House of Commons. <clears throat> Sorry, that's me talking too much, isn't it? <laughs> um, to be, to try, they try and they had tried to, to pass it as a legal obligation for employers, but it's failed again, you know, and it, the, the reasons why it's failed are just some of the reasons what we're talking about here today. Um, you know, when you think about physical first aid, there is legislation, there are reporting mechanisms, you know, people, if you send somebody to, you know, a and &E, you've got to actually sit down and, and write a report and it's monitored and it's reviewed. And when it comes to mental health first aid, where someone's at risk of suicide, people don't have safeguarding policies and procedures in place, or even critical incident forms that should be filled in when these things are happening. So I think there's a lot going on in the workplace that we just don't know about because it's not being reported, no one's monitoring it. So, you know, there, I think we are just at the beginning. For my crystal ball, for you know, one of our major goals when it comes to creating mentally healthy workplaces is in over the next kind of 10 years, what five to 10 years, what we want to see is that workplaces actually invest in significant, comprehensive leadership and management training for creating mentally healthy workplaces for culture change, because that's what we're missing. We're still at the education piece and the reducing stigma bit. What we're trying to do through the design of our level four diploma, which is uh, mapped over to an apprenticeship um, standard is we can now actually use this. We can bring together apprenticeships and mental health, um, workplace mental health expertise and bring them together so that it's a comprehensive level of skills and knowledge and behaviors and tools that are a part of a, a leadership development program so that everybody in a workplace, you know, from your frontline managers all the way up to your senior leaders and key people whose responsibility it's generally given to, like HR professionals, to lead these culture change models, that they have much more than just a one day awareness course. This really is about behavior change. That's where I would like to get to. <clears throat> and I think if we can do this, we'll definitely start to see work-related stress, anxiety, and depression coming down because you will have implemented the full policy, procedure, ongoing monitoring, auditing, stress risk assessments, preventatively, early intervention. It will, it will be doing everything possible to prevent work-related stress from happening where it does happen that it's intervened much earlier rather than what's happening now is people don't know about the legislation. They don't know, never even heard of a stress risk assessment. They're not being used. Um, and people just get sent to Oki Health if they've, they've gone on the sick with work-related stress because nobody knows how to deal with it in the workplace. So yeah, for me, I wanna see that real culture change piece that will impact the economy in the UK. 
but the impact of the economy means it's impacting the people because the people are our economy. They are our biggest asset in the UK. Yeah, for sure. So do you have some um, parting words of advice for professionals who are aspiring to work in this field of workplace uh, psychological health and safety? Yes. Um, do it properly. <laughs> I think there is, a, we have seen, because the workplace mental health field isn't regulated, there are a lot of people out there who have seen a, a, an opportunity to make money. I'm not saying that it's being done with bad will, but like I said, you only know what you know. So you may think that you're doing a great thing where actually you may be creating additional risks for companies as well. So I think it's really important that if this is what you want to work in, that you you get the right qualifications, you do the right training, um, you know, working with people with mental health problems in recovery is overrides for me any of my training and qualifications. Because what you can learn, I like to use this as an example, you know, when we look at the criteria in the DSM for clinical depression, you know, it's very, very specific. There's nine specific symptoms that you are going to fit into this little box, no tests or anything to say that that's what it is. Um, and we, we kind of think that everybody who has depression is going to fit into this box. But when you've actually worked with people with mental health problems through recovery, you can have 100 people in the same room who've all had a diagnosis of clinical depression will all experience it differently. All of their stories will be very, very different, very, very complex. And I think when you have not experienced that real life of supporting people through these difficult times I'm not quite sure how you then go into workplaces and train um, just based on you know a five-day training course about all the signs and symptoms of all the little labels you can put people into a box for so you know I think it it's about protecting people safeguarding people is our priority and I think also for us, it's about being an ethical business. You know, if we can't go in and work ethically and safeguard an, uh, an organisation through our interventions, then we shouldn't be doing it. And I think that really is for me. Um, my advice is if you want to work in this field where we're significantly trying to impact people who are potentially vulnerable, have uh, mental illness, maybe at risk of suicide, we need to be doing this properly. There is no room for error and things to go wrong in this field. So I think that would be my, my advice. Good advice. Thank you, Emily. Yeah, Emily, um, it's been a, a great conversation. Um, we really wanted to talk about, I guess, mental health first aid and the, I guess, psych hazards associated with that. And uh, I guess there's no one better than someone who actually has, you know, experience in delivering the course, but also like yourself, actually building the controls that organisations can implement to, as you say, safeguard those people who are put in that position to provide that peer support. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what it should be about. Safeguarding should be the first thing that we think about before we implement any type of mental health initiative in the workplace. 
Yeah. So look, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Glad we could finally get it after uh, I think it was a few months trying to schedule this one in. So um, great to have you on. Um, all the best with your work. Uh, where can people find out more about Our Minds Work? Oh, so on our website, um, which is ourmindswork.com and LinkedIn as well. If you can find our page on LinkedIn, it's just Our Minds Work with a, an apostrophe S on uh, Minds. We post a lot on, on LinkedIn as well. Terrific. Yeah. So um, thanks so much, Emily. Uh, so listeners, that brings us to the end of the show today. Um, talking about LinkedIn, you know, Joelle and I and um, the Psych Health and Safety podcast are very active as well. So feel free to reach out to us or, or follow us uh, over LinkedIn. Uh, we also record all these conversations that we have over the Zoom uh, that we use and we publish them on the Flourish DX YouTube channel. So feel free to check out the video if you prefer that. Uh, also, we do do the short form um, videos that we publish on the Flourish DX uh, LinkedIn page. Um, so that's it for this episode, listeners. We'll catch you next time. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.